0: This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program. This is our eighth annual Thanksgiving Day Radio Parallax. If you do a show every Thursday, you can pretty much count on the fact that you'll be doing a show on Thanksgiving. And so we are. And being that it is a holiday, we try and keep things a little light on uh, today's program and not delve into some of the darker topics we sometimes stray into. So what I think we'll do is bring back uh, one of our favorites in the program, Sean Minton, longtime sports broadcaster from the Pacific Northwest, will join us in segment two to talk about, uh, I don't know, whatever we feel like talking about, which will probably have something to do with sports. And I know sports is a kind of a funny topic for public affairs, but um it's something we all enjoy in our life, either as uh, spectators or participants. And if you look at it in the broad sense, it touches our lives in so many ways. So doggone, it, we're gonna talk sports in segment two. And I haven't decided yet. In our third segment we may play one of our uh, one of our favorites from uh from some other media. I don't know. We'll think of something by the time we get to segment number three. We'll try and keep it lighthearted and amusing. Let's begin the program as we like to do with On This Date in History, the date in question being the 26th of November. Let's start out by noting that it was on this date in 1941. President Franklin Delano Roosevelt signed a bill officially establishing the fourth Thursday in November as Thanksgiving Day in the United States. The tradition of celebrating the holiday on Thursday dates back to the early history of the Plymouth and Massachusetts Bay Colonies. In 1939, Roosevelt departed from tradition by declaring November 23rd, the next-to-last Thursday that year, as Thanksgiving Day. Considerable controversy surrounded this deviation, and some Americans refused to honor his declaration. After two years, he admitted his mistake and signed the bill, officially making the last Thursday in November the national holiday. And now you know the rest of the story. And uh, it was on the same date back in 1789 that our first president, George Washington, proclaimed a national Thanksgiving Day to honor the signing of the U.S. Constitution. Listed in 1862, the Oxford mathematician Charles Ludwig Dodgson sent a handwritten manuscript called Alice's Adventures Underground to 10-year-old Alice Liddell, better known as Lewis Carroll. The English author made up that story one day on a picnic with young Alice and her two sisters became one of the earliest children's books written simply to amuse children, not to teach them. On this date in 1927, the Ford Motor Company announced the introduction of the Model A. This is the first new Ford to enter the market since the Model T back in 1908. With prices starting at $460, nearly 5 million Model As in several body styles and a variety of colors rolled onto the American landscape until production ended in 1931. And I'm pleased to note that it was a 1928 flatbed Model A truck, upon which I learned to drive. But that was back when we had orchards in the Bay Area and farmland and places to drive an old flatbed uh, Model A. Sad to say those days may not be completely gone, but I think they're pretty close to. And I gotta tell you, I loved that Model A. Its top speed was 25, as I recall, but dang, it was reliable. On this date in 1965, the third nation to put uh, something into space did so. And your, your quiz is, who was that? As you ponder who that might be, we'll, uh, we'll do a couple other items. On November 26th of 1983, Great Britain, and possibly the world's greatest robbery, took place as some 25 million pounds worth of gold, almost $40 million at the time, in the form of 6,800 gold bars, was stolen from the Brinks-Matt security warehouse at London's Heathrow Airport. Pretty impressive, but I'm not sure I'd call it the world's greatest robbery. The world's greatest robbery took place 17 years later, on November 26th, in the year 2000. Because, ladies and gentlemen, this marked the moment when Florida Secretary of State Catherine Harris certified Texas Governor George W. Bush as the winner in the state's presidential election by a 537-vote margin. And yes, the stopping of the recount, which would have put Al Gore in the White House by the U.S. Supreme Court, certainly has to outrank those stolen gold bars from Heathrow Airport. This might be a good time to mention that the opinions heard on this program do not necessarily represent those of KDVS, our sponsors, or the regents of the University of California. And they definitely do not represent the views of Karl Rove. Anyway, wondering who the uh, third space power was after the U.S. and the Soviet Union? Well, if you said France, go to the head of the class. It was on the, November 26th in 1965 that France successfully launched the Asterix satellite into space. I think we'll pose a trivia question for next week's program uh, for you to email your answer in. How many nations have launched satellites into space? Mm-hmm. The winner will receive an official Radio Parallax on air attaboy. Now we do want to mention uh, before we continue that we're really excited at the prospect of having Gerald Nachman on the program in the weeks to come. His book, uh, Raised on Radio, was a classic, we thought. And I'm currently reading his book, Seriously Funny, the Rebel Comics of the 1950s and 60s, but uh, we're going to bring him on to talk about his latest book on Ed Sullivan. But While we have him, we're going to see if we can't uh, talk about all three of these wonderful, wonderful books. In, uh, in reading the book on the Rebel Comics, I was struck by the fact that, uh, like Radio Parallax, uh, Gerald Nachman had Mortsal <laughs> refuse an interview. Even though he's on the cover and clearly the guy that started the ball rolling and is kind of the hero of the entire effort. I was struck in reading the book that uh, Mort Saul became a, uh, uh, virtually a household name in America by virtue of going out on stage and doing something that no comic had done before, which was to simply comment upon the things going on in the world. He would read the paper and then go out and do, you know, hours of stand up. And a lot of it wasn't all that yuck-yuck funny. It was uh, amusing, or at least it was meant to be amusing, but it frequently had a bite to it. And so uh, after thinking about it, I thought, you know, we too owe quite a debt to Mort Sall. After all, week in and week out, uh, we do an awful lot of reporting on what's going on out there and giving you our slant on it. Our goal is to put things that are going on in what we would regard as their proper context and not just follow the way that the wind is blowing in the national media. I, I hope we're succeeding. Uh, I also want to just take a moment to just thank all the people out there whose job it is to work on this day, including people down at the radio station. Community radio stations depend on uh, people working for the love of, uh, of uh, you know, turning out a fine product, turning out something that's not mainstream, something that's a little bit different, a uh, little, little avant-garde perhaps, but uh, something that's creative. it's a good time to thank all the people at uh, places like uh, KDVS and KZFR where we were heard, but also places like KVMR. And of course, uh, working on a holiday transcends radio stations. People have to work in hospitals. People have to work in fire stations. Police have to to remain on the job. Uh, Life goes on and someone's got to be, you know, standing watch. And so as we like to do every year, we want to thank all of you people who are working today a holiday. We also should note a bit of Radio Parallax trivia that Mr. McMillan is a direct descendant of, was it John Alden and Priscilla Mullen off of the Mayflower, some of those pilgrim fathers that uh, got that ball rolling in the Thanksgiving tradition. Our quote of the day comes from the aforementioned Lewis Carroll, who once said, If you don't know where you're going, any road will get you there. Our quip of the day, I think we'll make it actually several quips of the day come from the also aforementioned Mort Saul. According to Mort, a conservative is someone who believes in reform, but not now. He also said liberals feel unworthy of their possessions. Conservatives feel they deserve everything they've stolen. And finally, Ronald Reagan won because he ran against Jimmy Carter. If he ran unopposed, he would have lost. Our stat of the day comes from the formula that President Obama is relying upon as he decides whether to send new troops to Afghanistan. The White House believes that the formula should assume a cost of $1 million per soldier for every year of deployment. This means 40,000 additional troops in Afghanistan will cost the U.S. Treasury about $40 billion per year. Ladies and gentlemen, that cost is not for the soldiers. That cost us for the hardware, and that goes to defense contractors. But the good news at the bottom of that is uh, money not, might not get spent. You could uh, buy a lot of health care for 40 extra billion dollars a year. And uh, what the heck, let's see if we can't do the good, the bad, and the ugly. Oh. According to The Week magazine, it was a good week last week for status updates after 19-year-old Rodney Bradford of Brookfield, New York, convinced police to drop charges that he'd committed a robbery at 11.50 a.m. by proving he'd updated his Facebook page at 11.49 a.m. This is believed to be the first criminal case in which a Facebook entry has provided an alibi. It was, on the other hand, a bad week for Andy Lee House of Lufkin, Texas. And he accidentally drove his $2 million Bugatti Veyron into a marsh. The French-built Veyron is among the world's fastest and most expensive production cars. House, age 34, told police he was distracted by a low-flying Pelican, which he said caused him to drop his cell phone and veer off the road. Well, there's a lesson in that. If you're talking on the cell phone and the pelican comes along, well, disaster could ensue. And finally, it was an ugly week last week for eminent domain when it was revealed that the pharmaceutical maker Pfizer was closing down its New London, Connecticut Research Center built adjacent to private property seized in a landmark eminent domain case. In 2001, city officials lured Pfizer to New London with incentives that included rights to private property that the city had seized from homeowners. When the property owners sued, the U.S. Supreme Court eventually ruled 5-4 to four that governments are allowed to seize private property to encourage developments that result in tax revenues and new jobs. Commented local resident Michael Cristofaro, they stole our home for economic development. It was all for Pfizer, and now they get up and walk away. The company said that to cut costs, it would relocate most of the 1,400 employees to nearby Groton. Boy, that's a sordid case. We did talk about uh, that with Michael Trachman. And you missed, if you missed that segment of Radio Parallax, we would, highly, uh, re- we would highly recommend that you go to our archives at radioparallax.com and uh, listen in. We, we talked a bit about uh, that famous New London case. Item from the Only in America file. A Pennsylvania Boy Scout who cleared a hiking trail in a city park has drawn the ire of a municipal union. Kevin Anderson, age 17, spent more than 200 hours clearing the trail in Allentown to earn an Eagle Scout badge. But Nick Balzano of the Service Employees International Union threatened to file a grievance, saying only union members can work in the park. Said Balzano, There's to be no volunteers. And no, we we don't know that he talked like that, but probably should have. That is why unions sometimes get a bad name. We're trying to keep things light and amusing on today's program, but uh, we just can't resist talking about former Alaska Governor Sarah Palin. Commenting on her recent uh, promotional tour for her book, Richard Cohn in the Washington Post said, It may seem unthinkable to people like me, but most Republicans have quite an irrational belief that she would not make a bad president. Cohn suspects people feel that way because she will act out their resentments against the media, intellectuals, and blue state sophisticates. Makes me think of that Will Durst line about why people from Arkansas look down on those from Mississippi saying, hey, hey, look at him. He's wearing shoes. Writing in Salon.com, Joan Walsh said, All we've learned from her book and her interviews is that she's truly a vindictive, spiteful person. If she isn't blaming Katie Couric and the media for twisting her incoherent words or the McCain campaign for mishandling her, she's fighting a juvenile tit-for-tat with her 19-year-old grandbaby daddy, Levi Johnston. Seriously, if you can't win a PR battle with a teenage high school dropout, are you ready? Are you really the person to negotiate with world leaders, run the federal government, and outwit al-Qaeda? I love the article by Michelle Goldberg in the American Prospect reprinted in the Sacramento Bee titled, Palin Doesn't Let the Facts Impede a Good Manifesto. I can't resist quoting from this article. Palin and her ghostwriter Lynn Vincent do an expert job of weaving an alternative reality in which Palin's only mistakes lay in her deference to the cynical Washington insiders surrounding John McCain and in her underestimation of the viciousness of liberal elites noting various bloggers have cataloged the book's lies and evasions, though it's so rich in both that I kept finding new ones that I hadn't seen others pick up on yet. For example, on pages 246 and 7, Palin cites a sympathetic Investor's Business Daily editorial that, quote, laid out the key facts, unquote, about the various misdeeds of her ex-brother-in-law, state trooper Mike Wooten, quote, including hunting wild game illegally, a big deal in Alaska where people ethically harvest game to eat, unquote. In fact, noted Michelle Goldberg, the right-wing investor's business daily was simply quoting Palin and her father on this and other charges. And the charge itself is a fraud, a minor one, but one that illuminates Palin's deceptive modus operandi. On page 39, she writes, Ronald Reagan faced an even worse recession. He showed us how to get out of one. If you want real job growth, cut capital gains taxes and slay the death tax once and for all. noted Goldberg, the current recession is far worse than the one Reagan faced. As the Associated Press pointed out, Reagan never repealed the estate tax, and capital gains taxes were higher during his administration than they are now. Anyway, that's quite enough of Sarah Palin. Let's see if we can't go to one of our great resources, the Uncle John's Bathroom Reader series, and talk about some other dumb crooks. Here's one we never heard about, but have to love. Apparently, kidnappers who abducted Gildo dos Santos, de his factory in a suburb of Sao Paulo, Brazil, demanded $690,000 in ransom, but Santos escaped. The next day, Santos got a phone call asking for $11,500 to defray the cost of the abduction. After the canny businessman negotiated a discount of 50%, he called the police, who were waiting when Luis Carlos Valerio showed up to collect his payment. How about this one? A quick-fill gas station attendant in Syracuse, New York, stole $300 from the till then tried to cover it up by calling police and reporting that the station had been robbed. His plan was foiled when police asked him to describe the robber, and he gave them a perfect description of himself. But uh, my personal favorite is the case of James Brian Keene, age 40, on trial in Largo, Florida, for murder. He said that the victim's death was accidental, and he was so embarrassed at the accident, he made it look like a murder to throw police off. The United Press syndicate noted that it must have worked. He was convicted. And uh, before we go to a break, let's take a section called Ironic, isn't it? To to see if we can't put the problems of our day-to-day life in maybe better perspective. All right, item. May 2000, a Save the Whales activist was forced to call off his sailing voyage across the Pacific Ocean, which he'd hoped would call attention to his cause. The reason? His 60-foot boat was damaged by two passing whales. And what was described as an unrelated incident... In July 2001, the 50-foot yacht Penego was struck by a whale while sailing 350 miles off the coast of Newfoundland. What was crew member John Fullerton doing when the incident occurred? Well, reading a copy of Moby Dick. Apparently in January 2000, a Florida 7th grade teacher had his 70 students write their elected representatives a letter. Purpose of the exercise was to demonstrate that their opinions matter. At the end of the school year, none of the students had received a reply. All right, reportedly in 1982, Bill Curtis, an electronical en- electronic technician at the Vancouver airport, became convinced that nuclear war was imminent. He was so convinced, in fact, that he moved his family to the place his research told him it would be the safest place on Earth. The Falkland Islands. The following April, 4,000 Argentinian troops attacked the islands and claimed them for Argentina. In the process started a shooting war with England that lasted for more than three months. But my personal favorite, back in August of 2000, a 44-year-old woman named Angel Destiny fled for her life dressed only in pajamas after half of her house in Cardiff, Wales, collapsed into rubble. Destiny, who makes her living as a psychic, told reporters, I just didn't see it coming. Let's take a short break. But before we do, let's see what our old pal Will Durst has to say.
1: Well, thanks, Doug. And today I'm going to be straight up with you people about Black Friday. Anybody who goes shopping at midnight after Thanksgiving is totally nutso. Not just totally nutso, dangerously totally nutso. Not just dangerously totally nutso, cuckoo crazy exponential factor 15 dangerously totally nutso, and they should be locked up in a small room with soft furry walls to keep them from hurting themselves or coming into contact with young impressionable minds. I'm sorry, am I allowed to say that, cuckoo? Or does that make me an insensitive lout disparaging an entire class of Swiss aviary timepiece mascots, subject to some sort of lame legal action from the Swiss government involving the withholding of chocolate above a 66% cocoa content? Well, you know what? I don't care. I got no plans to visit Geneva anytime soon, and an occasional Nestle's Crunch Crisp is about as exotic as I swing. So screw their damn clocks and the birds they rode in on. I'll even go one step further. If you voluntarily leave your nice warm pumpkin pie smelling house while it's still dark out and park near an empty cold shopping mall only to stand in line before 8 a.m. to buy some cheap piece of crap you could have ordered from a catalog, you should sheathe an eight piece set of fondue forks with your ass one at a time. Now, I know they call it Black Friday, because that's the day the retailing world depends on to move into the black for the entire year, and God forbid I wish any ill will on the retailing world, but here's something I was always curious about. What do you call a Black Friday that doesn't quite live up to expectations? Blacker Friday? Really, really, really Black Friday? Red Friday? Tuesday? I got it. How about November 27th, 2009? For Radio Parallax, I'm the original doorbuster, Will Durst.
0: You're listening to Radio Parallax. Let's take a short break. (laughs)